Hey guys, welcome to the Health Addict Show. Before we get started though, I want to cover a couple things. This show is for entertainment purposes only, meaning I am not your doctor. So if you have questions or concerns about your own health, please ask a physician, okay? Get the right information for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. everybody, welcome to the Health Addict Show. I'm your host, Tommy J, and we have another great episode for you today. We're going to talk about a couple things that I think are pretty cool, and one is another health field that I think a lot of you, if you're looking for a stepping stone to really get into healthcare, this is a perfect spot, and that is phlebotomy. Now, why would I recommend phlebotomy as a nice stepping stone to get into healthcare? One, you're getting yourself into patient care, and this is the greatest thing you ever could do. Having actual patient experience is fantastic. Two, you're also getting yourself a very valuable skill, which is blood draw. Blood draw will help you for the rest of your medical life. If you can draw blood and understand the different vials that you're going to draw into, not to mention the time management because you're very busy in phlebotomy, you're really going to get yourself a very valuable set of skills that a lot of people are going to want you to have. And thirdly, it's just a very easy way to get into healthcare. It's only about a six-month course overall, and then it's a little bit of clinical experience, but you're going to get into a very valuable set of skills into the hospital, not to mention the people you meet during phlebotomy. I mean, you're going to show up to rapid responses, you're going to show up to codes, you're going to show up to just about every single patient care area, because there's a lot of people that need lab draws, and it's a very important thing to have in a hospital is phlebotomy. So once again, the schooling isn't too difficult. Um, it's pretty straightforward. It's a couple times a week. You can do night classes or day classes, and you just go in and you really learn about blood draw, the safe ways to do it, the infectious control ways to do it, and the certain vials that you're going to draw, because you're going to draw an array of vials. There's different tests that you do from blood, and there's, I mean, so many different tests, to be honest. There's different color tubes that mean different things because they have different preservatives in it, and they perform different tests. Not to mention you'll do blood cultures, which are super important for checking for infections on patients. So phlebotomy, you're going to learn a very big array of skills by doing this course. Honestly, too, it's a very good point to really see if you can handle blood. Um, some people don't know they can handle blood until they actually do it. Sometimes people get queasy when they see the needle go into the skin. Some people get queasy when they actually see blood coming out. And some people don't like to be poked themselves. Um, I know during my phlebotomy course, we had to actually practice on each other. And it was very important to understand the amount of pain and trauma that you're causing to somebody. And, and more importantly, why you don't miss. Because any more pain that you have to cause that patient is a very detriment to their care. So we don't want to do that. So learning to take care of our patients is super important and learning these skills are super important. So don't think of this just as an easy entry. It is an easy entry, but there's a lot of important skills you learn in phlebotomy. So after you master drawing blood from different sites, because you're going to be looking for veins in a lot of different in different places, I should say, you'll take your test. You'll also do some clinicals. You want to have some clinical hours before you take your state test and get certified. And then by that point, you'll be able to work in the hospital or other patient care settings, such as a. Um, I know a lot of other doctor offices are now hiring phlebotomy with the medical assistant techs and things like that. So there's a lot of different other areas you can work than just inside the hospital. But the hospital is obviously your main employer for this field. 
I would have to say the only drawback to this position, and it's a and it's a, it is a significant drawback, is you're going to be very busy. Um, a lot of phlebotomists are going room to room, and there's no, and it's definitely not a small number to say that you might do 40 draws in a day. Um, a lot of people even do 60 draws in a day. They're very busy trying to get blood draws done because a lot of patients, a lot of care, and there's a lot of blood that needs to be tested. So phlebotomy, you're going to be busy. But I mean, that's everything in the healthcare setting. So if you're really thinking about getting into healthcare. You're definitely going to get your feet wet with this position. And like I said, you're going to learn a valuable skill that you're going to take with you for the rest of your life. I know I still perform blood draws, and I know that it helps me, especially in very big emergency responses, to know which blood vial does what and where to find veins and how to find them. And it's just super important skill that I think you should all know how to do. So if you'd like to consider phlebotomy and looking more into it, I know a lot of community colleges offer it as a course, and I know a lot of other career centers offer it as a course, or you can continue on and do the medical assistant triad of all of those courses together. So just consider it. It's a very good skill set to learn. It's got a high rate of pay to start out with, and you'll definitely get your feet wet if you're still considering healthcare for other professions if you want to continue on, whether it's nursing, physicians, physician's assistant, nurse practitioners, doctors radiologist, anything you really want to get into. All right, the next thing we're going to talk about is breath sounds. I think being able to diagnose lung sounds is super important in the medical field because, I mean, airway, breathing, circulation, we really need to know what the patient is doing, especially if we're having respiratory distress. So to be able to listen to the lungs and have a better estimation of what's going on inside will better facilitate treatment for your patient. Now, there's a lot of different variations of lung sounds, and people get them in between, mixed up, thrown different directions, but we're really going to go over three different kinds of lung sounds that are important to recognize. And if you can really diagnose the differences in these lung sounds, you're really going to facilitate the treatment of your patient in a very quick fashion, because having that knowledge and the differences in those variations is super important. Because just because someone's having lung noise, I mean, because it crackles, is it inspiratory crackles or expiratory crackles? Is it inspiratory wheeze or an expiratory wheeze? Are you having ronchi sounds? Are you having pleural rubbing? Are you having a tracheal noise versus an upper airway versus lower airway? See, I'm already probably losing a few of you. But the point is, we're going to go over three different ones that really are going to focus and then you can diagnose even further from there. Because you really, if you can break it down into these three different noises, you really can go farther into your treatment status. And before we get started, there's one more thing I want to make clear. You cannot hear bronchial wheezing audibly without auscultation. And I know that's going to make a lot of people mad, but I'm going to tell you the truth of the fact. You cannot physically hear lower tract bronchial wheezing just by using your ear. You have to use auscultation. If you're hearing your patient wheeze from the door, or if you're hearing your patient wheezing as you walk in and you're sitting bedside with them, that is not a lower track wheeze. That is an upper airway wheeze. Airway. Airway wheeze, meaning you're having some tracheal wheezing up top, whether that's inflammation, swelling, fluid adaptation, you need to really understand where the wheezing is coming from. So, or it could be forceful exhalation, meaning the patient's doing it on purpose, which does happen. The point is when people say, I can hear them wheezing from the door, guess what? Then it's not bronchial wheeze. It's not asthma. So you really need to focus on where the wheeze is coming from. So just to make it clear right off the back, if you can hear your patient wheezing from the door, that's not lung sounds folks. So Let's get started first with wheezing and what it is. So when you have actual physical wheezing, when you listen to the lungs in all the fields, whether it's 
apices or the bases or around the back or in the front anteriorly, what you're really hearing is the constriction of the bronchioles. You're having that swelling inside the lower track airways of your bronchioles causing inflammation and the air making a whistling noise as it passes by because of all the airway resistance. All right, so to give you a better sound of what's going on, here's what a wheeze sounds like overall. All right, anybody catch that one? So as you can see, this one's on expiratory wheeze, which means you're having an obstruction. This is kind of what you hear in your typical asthmatic patient. Now you might have inspiratory and expiratory, which is an even clearer sign that your patient's struggling, or even worse, you hear nothing at all, which means your patient's complete, like completely clocked down. And you definitely need to start giving some breathing treatments or looking for other interventions. But this gives you a better kind of signal what a wheeze is. It's a howling sound when you listen to it. There isn't any other noise besides that howling sound doesn't sound wet it's a very dry sound now just to reiterate though um it's not only asthma that suffers from this it's really more the trifecta of all patients that have that chronic obstructive pulmonary disease whether it's bronchiectasis cystic fibrosis emphysema chronic bronchitis or asthma um, you really have that wheezing associated with those disease processes now I'm not saying that other Disease processes can't cause wheezing. There's a lot of restrictive diseases that cause wheezing, but that's not really always bronchiospasmic. So that can't be treated with a breathing treatment. But overall, if you start hearing wheezing, it's not a bad idea to at least try a breathing treatment. You never know if it's gonna help or not, but if your patient has that kind of diagnosis, it's more than likely gonna work for them. Now, the next noise I really wanna talk about is crackles. Crackles is a very important lung sound to understand. Now, crackles can be a lot of different things, uh, but mostly it means you have something in the airway, whether it's fluid, whether it's mucus, but you have something that's causing air to friction against a fluid. And this causes a crackling sound, almost like Rice Krispie treats. So um, the more important to understand here is that when your patient has this type of breath noise, you really aren't gonna be able to do anything with a breathing treatment. Yeah, they're struggling, you have airway resistance with the crackling, and there might be some discomfort, but the general reason for crackling is actually cardiac. For a lot of people, they have congestive heart failure. And when they start putting on a lot of fluid, the first place fluid likes to go is the lungs. So as a low pressure system versus your intravascular system, which is a high pressure system, the fluid likes to shift to your lungs pretty quickly. And this can cause crackling noises. And this is what crackling sounds like. As you see, it sounds like more bubbling than anything. So pretty much what you really need to understand is you have air being frictioned against fluid and it causes that crackly noise. So the best thing you can do for someone with this kind of condition is honestly give them Lasix, especially if their kidney function's okay and you're looking and you're seeing more of a congestive heart failure picture, Lasix is gonna be your best treatment for crackles. So being able to understand that is a really important thing. Um, the other thing to think about is maybe pneumonia or other fluid-filled diseases that could accompany that, but it's not gonna be something bronchospasmic that deals with crackles. So. Even though they sound bad, it's not something you're gonna treat with a breathing treatment. It's gonna be treated with other interventions. But this is your crackling noise. Crackles, I would normally equate with congestive heart failure. 
Now, the last breath sound I want to talk about is Ronkai. And Ronkai is probably the easiest, easiest breath sound to understand because, man, you can't even hear yourself think half the time when you're listening to a patient that has Ronkai breath sounds. They are so noisy and trash-filled in their lungs. They're full of secretions and other debris inside of it. There's just so much noise because they're thick and wet inside the lungs. This is Ronkai, okay? Here's some breath sounds for Ronkai. Man, that noise just makes you want to suction your patient, I'm telling you. The big thing is your patient's not clearing their secretions for the most time. So this is someone that's a slug that sits in bed, they're developing a pneumonia or another type of infection. Maybe it's upper airway infection, upper respiratory infection, and slowly sleeping down into the lungs. This patient needs to really start clearing their secretions. And this is somebody that really needs some pulmonary hygiene. And we mean by pulmonary hygiene, um, you can accompany breathing treatments now at this point. You probably really could help them get some of that secretions up. Uh, you can do percussive therapy to really beat on the chest and loosen that stuff up so they can cough it up better. There's something called PEP therapy, which is positive expiratory pressure therapy. It's a device that they blow into, which helps get the secretions up. Uh, we have vest therapies, which is a very high frequency oscillating vest that really gets the secretions moving. Uh, we also have... <laughs> I hate to call it this. Uh, we call it a cough assist usually, but it's a suction therapy that it's like a vacuum. It really pulls the secretions out of people. But this is typically for someone who doesn't have good expiratory function and who can't cough up their secretions, whether it's diaphragmatic weakness or other restrictive diseases. We can use this device to really get secretions up. But that would be the ideal time to start using things like this to get secretions out of a patient. Another thing that kind of happens with Ronchi too, you might have airway wheezes from Ronchi because you have secretions sitting so much in the airway. So, but when wheezes clear, when you cough with them, that's your instant notice to know that that's Ronchi over just wheezing because wheezes shouldn't go away with a cough. You have airway inflammation with wheezing. When you have airway wheezing from secretions, you definitely know it's Ronchi. So sometimes if you hear wheezing, sometimes it's good to ask your patient to give a good clearing cough to see if it dissipates with that. But I hope this helps you. I hope it really gives you an idea to lung sounds and give you a better observation to when you're auscultating your patient. You can really hear the different kind of lung sounds. Now, there is one more sound I really want to go over because it's a very important sound, but it's not in the lungs. This one is at the trachea. You're going to listen at the trachea. And usually you don't have to if it's really bad, but if you can hear strider, this is an important emergency treatment you need to do. And you need to start giving racemic epi right away because your patient's upper airway is closing off. This can happen in a lot of different cases. One of the main reasons is anaphylaxis, an allergic reaction to something that they've either ate, ingested, or been exposed to. And we don't like this because this is one of the cascades to going into shock. You can have anaphylactic shock. So we really need to make sure that patient maintains their airway or we have to use other types of intervention, whether an artificial airway. But here's what Strider sounds like. You're going to think there's a ball stuck in your patient's throat when you hear this. But the point is, they're squawking for a reason. This They cannot move air. It's so tight and there's so much friction that the patient cannot breathe. And they're going to really let you know. I mean, a patient typically is pretty frightened at this point because, I mean, once you start feeling that pressure and that sense of swelling, you're going to know right away that a lot of times it's upper airway swelling. So understand if you can hear this, get things going, okay? 
Alright folks, that's all I have for you today. I hope you consider phlebotomy if you're looking into a position to get into healthcare or medical assistant is another good route. But these two routes for getting into blood drawing is a great skill to have. You're really going to want this for the rest of your life. So it's one of those gateway careers I feel like is a great way to get exposed into healthcare. And these lung sounds, I hope they help you on your path, making sure that you can diagnose, treat, and understand what's going inside your patient's lungs. If you have questions about the show, please hit me up with some messages. Or if you'd like a more in-depth knowledge of breath sounds, I can give you more about that from my respiratory career. If you have other things you'd like to learn, please message me on any of the platforms. I am on all social media. And stay tuned for our next episode, and I hope to see you there. Stay addicted to your health, and I will see you next time.